Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, one of the podcast hosts, and I interview authors of art and architecture books published by Yale University Press. My guest today is Vid Simoniti, author of the book Artists Remake the World, a contemporary art manifesto, which we've just published. Professor Simoniti is a lecturer in the philosophy of art at the University of Liverpool, and his academic work focuses on the interplay between art and social and political change. The book Artists Remake the World is about this exactly and serves as an accessible and thought-provoking introduction to some of Professor Simoniti's research on and thinking about contemporary art and its capacity as a force for political and social change. The American conceptual artist and philosopher Adrian Piper has written about this book. Simoniti has written a subtle, courageous meditation on contemporary political art. This book offers us a profound, critical reconsideration of the aesthetic resources we bring to the urgent human issues it addresses. Vid, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Can we start with just a short review of your terminology? In the book, what specifically are we talking about when we talk about art? What are we talking about when we talk about artists? And what are we talking about when we talk about politics? Yeah, a fantastic way to start. So when we're talking about art in, in this book, I'm focusing on contemporary visual art. And I look specifically at the last 23 years. And contemporary visual art, as opposed to the other arts, say music, uh, film, and so on, has always had this problem of definition. Because after the 1960s, as the listeners to this podcast will no doubt uh, know, we have this huge explosion of media. We really move away from painting and sculpture to what uh, Rosalind Krauss called the expanded field. And so after that uh, explosion of different media, when we talk about contemporary visual art, we usually resort to the institutional definition. So we want to say art is whatever is being shown in the kind of nexus of museum and biennial exhibitions within the contemporary art world. Now, as I say in the book, this, is, this feels like a sophist's trick. It feels like we're dodging the question, um, but that's the starting point. And then I sort of try and build a, a more substantive definition or take on it later on. But yeah, that's what we're looking at, contemporary visual art of the last 23 years. Now, in terms of um, politics, I've, after kind of toying with different ways of uh, approaching this question, I've decided to focus on the way in which politics unfolds in capitalist democracies uh, today, um, you know, both in the global south and global north, and looked at three different ways in which we can understand politics. Firstly, as discourse, so as contribution to the, say, public debate about what society should do. And I'm looking at artists that seek to intervene into that debate. Secondly, as action, so looking at artists who are uh, more artist activists or socially engaged artists. And finally, something I call world-making or has been called world-making, which is a more subtle way in which a shared culture is shaped, right? So then we're kind of more in the domain of ideology, if you like. So these are the three ways in which I think of politics in this book. And then who are artists? Well, uh, contemporary artists 
perhaps are marked by the fact that they're kind of mavericks, right? As we said, they don't specialize in a particular medium, but they can draw on all kinds of interdisciplinary formations. So they often borrow from archival work, from um, documentary, from just sheer gathering of data, from research. And it's this that particularly interests me, right? Why do we need this figure of an artist as someone who kind of does what historian or journalist or an activist might do, but with an artistic twist? Mm. Uh, let's go back to the context of the capitalist democracy and why that's important. I mean, what so what what is different within your argument between, say, Kara Walker making art in the U.S. and Ai Weiwei, who actually is an artist who whose work you do discuss in the book somewhat mm. too. Yeah, I mean, I do discuss Ai Weiwei's work, um, but predominantly the way in which his work is exhibited or shown in the West, even if it is work about China. Um, well, it, it just struck me that what happens in in states that have various degrees of authoritarianism in place, uh, such as China or you know Russia. Uh, there or Iran, let's say, there, there is just such a different positioning of the artist as someone who potentially offends against the dominant ideology and faces really severe consequences for that. Now, of course, artists in capitalist democracies also work within the constraints of their system, right? Uh, in terms of, say, broadly speaking, capitalism, they might have to align themselves with the donors that sponsor the museum, or they might think about their survival on the art market and so forth, right? In terms of the state, they can, of course, also transgress against the uh, ideals of particular political parties. But on the whole, they don't face that um, same degree of repercussions as artists in authoritarian regimes. And therefore, you get a kind of a question, well, what is their position? Uh, if they're not here to provoke and to kind of risk it for the rest of us, then what is it that they can contribute to political discourse? Um, often, right, in capitalist democracies, the kind of shock doctrine that's associated with artists no longer seems to work, right? So that's why I focused on on artists and, and capitalist democracies. Uh, just the stakes are different. Mm. Do, do you have the sense that it, that, that results in a meaningful difference in the art that's produced? Yeah, I mean, in some ways, even say artists, if we look at someone like, say, Pyotr Pavlensky in Russia, who, you know, created these uh, kind of actionist, uh, really provocative performances, he famously nailed his scrotum uh, on, onto the floor in a kind of protest of, of uh, Russian policies. Or if you look at, I don't know, the group around Pussy Riot and the kind of work that they were doing, sort of very uh, in-your-face uh, controversial work for which um, they, you know, some of them went to jail. That th There is that, right? Like there is a sense in which like going strongly and shockingly against the dominant ideology works or has a special meaning within that production. I don't think we see that much of that kind of super controversial work within contemporary art in capitalist democracies of the last uh, 20, 25 years. 
we, we did, of course, before, kind of in the 1980s, you know, I'm going to think of Robert Mapplethorpe or someone like that. But I don't think that is kind of at the forefront as much now. Mm-hmm. And you do refer, though, to what the artists, you know, political artists in capitalist democracies are doing as world making, although you set up a kind of dichotomy in the book, world making and unworld making. Would you uh, unpack those terms a little bit for us? Yeah, so the word world making is one that has kind of been around in contemporary art discourse. So Donna Haraway, for example, talks about worlding, uh, American philosopher, very influential in contemporary art. Uh, one of the artists I look at the work in the book, uh, Naomi Rinson Gallardo, she talks about world making to describe her practice specifically. Uh, Jaina Brown, American scholar, has described world-making of science fiction in relation to uh, Black artistic production specifically. Um, Now, I wasn't able to locate exactly when this usage of world-making started, but I go back to uh, Nelson Goodman, an American philosopher, who talks about world-making as this rearranging of our shared information and the way in which world is organized. So... There's this attempt, I think, by art, not just contemporary art, to rearrange what appears as normal or salient, uh, to offer a different evaluation or explanation of phenomena. So it's perhaps easiest to explain this on an example. Um, Let's take a really kind of well-known example, like paintings by David Hockney. So this is a different time now, 1960s. Hockney's paintings show these... Uh, young men lux- uh, luxuriously sprawled out in front of swimming pools in California. And often, right, these are described as a- offering a different vision of gay life, of queer life. This is no longer queer life that is kind of dominated by shame, but is one which seems to be uplifting, uh, tinged with melancholy perhaps, but nevertheless a positive life. Now, what happens in this painting politically Well, there's no message in this painting. You can't pin down a particular message. There's no particular call to action. There's no particular call to the change of policy. But very broadly speaking, what we can say is in this painting is a combination of um, different sensibilities which would have been around at the time and their rearrangement so a new way of looking at the social world becomes possible, right? I mean, there's many different philosophical terms to describe this, but let's let's go with world making. Now, what I think is happening in some of the recent practices is this really interesting return to figuration and aesthetics, you know, things that look quite beautiful, things that are quite um, uh, figurative, that often involve storytelling. Uh, so, for example, Naomi Rinson Gallardo, who I mentioned, uh, a Mexican artist who often works with uh, indigenous mythologies to comment on the challenges that indigenous people face in South America. Um, she often uses, say, storytelling and so forth. And I think the kind of political significance of that is not so much activism or message, but a kind of a different way of perceiving, right? Now, I I talk about world unmaking, on the other hand, as the duty that these artists have to not only offer us kind of positive visions of a better society by which to live, but also to insert 
uh, a level of unease or a level of critique within that. Why? Because on the one hand, what we desperately need, of course, are uh, better ways of perceiving our shared social world. But it is all too easy in capitalist democracy to set that up as a shiny positive ideal um, without really doing anything underneath on the structural level. So what do I mean by that? Well, a kind of stereotypical example might be something like Benetton adverts, right? Where we have smiling children of all kinds of ethnicities, holding hands, being happy. And it's very easy to buy into that uh, image, into that world making of equality and diversity without really questioning the underlying social structures. So the kind of contemporary art that today tries to articulate new visions of cohabiting and new political uh, worlds always runs the risk of flattening those worlds into something shiny, into something too easy, into something that becomes just a part of the official culture of equality and diversity. And I think the very best artists, like, for example, Rinson Gallardo, also insert something uncomfortable, which makes the viewer think, well, to what extent are those worlds realized? Does that does that kind of make sense? Mm, absolutely. And, in fact, you know, you write not just about art, the importance of art inserting something uncomfortable, but in fact, offering a kind of interpretive puzzle, you know, being in some way um, an elusive message for the viewer. Um, why, why, you know, you express admiration for that idea. Why, why do you think that's important? And what, you know, is there a risk in it being so abstruse that the viewer just can't get it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Great. Um, so maybe just to, hmm, maybe just to kind of give an example that, that might be able to, that might be useful to illustrate that kind of elusiveness that I'm looking for. So one of the fa my favorite artists in the book that I talk about is Sohar Pura, who is a um, an Indian photographer. And he has produced this really interesting allegorical uh, photographic series where there's also a short story involved. And these are photographs that look, um, there, there's a shot in through, through night photography uh, kind of, they have the, the image of they have the kind of look of street photography shot at night uh, they show these festivities at an unspecified village on the Indian coast somewhere in South India it doesn't tell us where and we see people celebrating uh, a festival which involves a lot of masquerade so you have these visions of people um, dressed up, engaged in acts of mock violence. Uh, there's kind of blood running down someone's face. Uh, there's a lot of trompe d'oeil, you know, someone hiding their head. It looks that, like they don't have a head. So there's this kind of um, festival-like strange uh, scene going on. And what it all sort of stands for, once you look at the allegory, uh, allegorical short story that accompanies these images, is a... Um, an allegory of the kind of violence that gets propagated through social uh, media, through WhatsApp group 
in India at the time, especially leading up to the election which returned uh, Narendra Modi to power. Uh, there was a lot of social media content at that time which called for um, persecution of Muslims especially. Okay, so here we have a work that is highly allegorical, highly uh, curious, uh, un unusual, requires a lot of interpretative attention. And we have a message which is an intervention into a specific political debate. Now, the really fair question is, why do we want this? Why do we expect art to be interpretatively puzzling or complex in this way? Why don't artists just tell us straightforwardly what they mean and kind of um, become activists, right? And that is a question that's very live in contemporary art debate right now. So I want to throw in my lot with the, with the kind of complexity. Um, and I think one thing that this achieves is that it enables a kind of thinking which just isn't available anywhere else in uh, the normal framework of democratic cap of, of uh, democratic capitalism. So if we look at the way social media uh, are structured, if we look at the way in which kind of polarizing public discourse is conducted, right, that... Um, that discourse abhors complexity, and sometimes it needs to. It um, abhors interpretative puzzlement, right? So if there's any space in which we can find ourselves not forced to immediately take sides, not forced to immediately jump to conclusions about what should be done, it is through this kind of art. But what the artist must be extremely skilled at is this ability of creating uh, something that is interpretatively complex enough that holds the viewer's attention and at the, and at the same time not so confusing that we just have no tools of ac accessing the content. Um, yeah. Mm. And what about, you know, we've, so we've talked about photography and painting. You also write in the book about um, recent artworks that have significant overlap with other forms of communication like reportage, where maybe the complexity comes in and understanding why the project is art to begin with. How, how do those fit into the, to the picture? Yeah. So I think that the... Uh, so in the book, I kind of look at um, three, if you like, kind of broad, broadly speaking, we could almost say genres of, of contemporary art, which seem to have really flourished in the last 20 years. And they are um, firstly the kind of um, evidence-driven art, a kind of paradigm case might be something like Forensic Architecture Group in London, whose artworks and installations are these extremely positivistic, extremely kind of evidence-driven uh, installations. Uh, one of them, for instance, uh, that perhaps catapulted them onto the international art scene uh, was an investigation into the murder of Halit Yozgat, which was a, uh, a German, young German man of Turkish origins who was murdered in, in Germany in the 2010s. And they, they created forensic architecture, this incredibly detailed reconstruction of the murder, which contradicted the evidence that the police gave, right? So here the artist plays a role of an investigator. 
And we see this, I think, a lot in kind of research-based artistic practices. Uh, and another genre that I look at is socially engaged art, which bleeds into, if you like, social work. So a particular predicament of contemporary art practices is that they always can merge with uh, ordinary modes of doing politics, um, right? And I think this is potentially a great strength of these artistic practices in the sense that, um, for example, forensic architecture can bring into the art space a reckoning with um, with evidence in a way that at that point uh, mainstream media would not do. But on the other hand, when the artist becomes simply a uh, a restater of facts uh, or simply a, a researcher, uh, they often run the risk of doing not so well something that already happens in other parts of society, right? Contemporary artists often can just become bad researchers or bad historians or bad archivists, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> but, but you know, but, but, the, but I'm not sort of against that. Um, I just think it's important to notice that that we have this problem right what is it that art the artists brings to the table and yeah and i try to argue that complexity is something that they can bring to the table mm. <clears throat> well, as you were researching and writing um did you think about the the the, cl the different clear audiences for the book you know art art historians philosophers artists themselves um politically engaged people who are interested in contemporary art and think about how you were communicating these ideas to each of those audiences in turn? Or was there, you know, did you have a broader sense of, of readership? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I did think a lot about the audience, um, kind of almost obsessively so uh, to the point where, <laughs> where it resulted in a few, to the point where it resulted in a few writer blocks. Um, but yeah, I, uh, I think the kind of a problem that one encounters when writing about this broad topic of contemporary art and politics is that on the one hand, you have the contemporary art world and art world adjacent academia, where the topic is seems like almost so broad that, um, you know, one could ask, like, why on earth are you writing about something so broad and so obvious? Um, because I think for my generation of people coming out of grad school, I was kind of in between art history and philosophy. Um, there was almost like a kind of a pattern in which to do things, right? You pick your contemporary artist that you want to write about, you pick a social issue, and then you sort of make this claim that these artists, you know, in some way subvert or uh, kind of uh, t turn on its head, you know, whatever the social issue is that you're writing about. I mean, I think this is very much the child of, um, broadly speaking, kind of October style of writing art history, right? Um and I, in in the book, I, I kind of quote a bit of Hal Foster, you know, when he when he discusses this. Um, but on the other hand, you have uh, audiences which are incredibly politically engaged, which go to art galleries and so forth. But um, the last thing on their mind is that this has anything to do with politics, because if you're interested in politics, I mean, go on protests, right? Donate, uh, join a political party. I mean, there are clear ways of doing politics 
which don't, don't involve art at all. So yeah, these are the two kind of interlocutors that I primarily had in mind when I was writing this. And I tried to write it in a way which doesn't rely too much on the kind of, um, you know, deeper philosophical or art historical apparatus to make the case that art has something to contribute. Um, yeah, and I suppose the, the last chapter in my book, though, I kind of indulge myself a little bit more and I go into um, kind of more specifically philosophical ways of thinking about the relationship between aesthetics and politics. Um, I look especially at Adrian Piper, Jacques Rancière and Theodore Adorno. You know, Rancière and Adorno especially are kind of people everyone refers to in this field. And I try to articulate uh, where my position differs from these. Mm. <clears throat> so I have two sort of related questions and follow up mm -hmm. to that. One is, you know, I, your book is a manifesto. It takes as given uh, certain political positions, you know, that climate change is urgent and caused by humans and needs to be addressed, this kind of thing. Do, what do you think your book might hold for somebody at, who is at a different point on the political spectrum, should they read mm. it? Yeah, that's that's a very, very fair question. I think there is a kind of a so, so maybe first to clarify manifesto, I was sort of slightly dragged into uh, calling it a manifesto. <laughs> so this is a publishing podcast. I think it's, uh, it's it's fair to mention this. But I did kind of come to kind of like the term a little bit um, in the sense that, yes, I do take a position, uh, especially in terms of kind of arguing for both the relevance of political art and for this kind of more complex form of producing this art, you know, bringing art back into political art, if you like. Um, but yeah, there is a kind of deeper worry, right, that when we are going into the art world, we're predominantly operating within the political worldview of, uh, I don't know what you might call this, uh, kind of the cosmopolitan, left-leaning, uh, or even quite far left uh, group, right? And I don't hide some of my own political allegiances, especially when it comes to um, the urgency of the climate disaster in, in the penultimate chapter. But I hope that the book isn't uh, inaccessible to a wider spectrum of political positions, namely precisely because I don't think that good political art is only that political art which takes the right banner, as it were. Good political art is the kind of art which enables us to think beyond the obviousness of the political situation, which sort of imagines kind of widely different, sort of strange even, takes on the political situation. So in the climate change chapter, I write about artists who are, um, yeah, I mean, imagining ways in which we could live maybe more aesthetically, more sort of without flights, let's say, and so forth, right? And I don't think that that is something that is on the cards politically, um, but we need that imaginative approach to uh, to be able to think of of solutions. Um, lastly, I guess I would say that I think that it's in their complexity that artworks can hopefully bring different audiences together. I mean, if I give go back to the example of Sohrabhura. Right. Um, I mean, I think there is a work that 
even say someone who is perhaps a supporter of Narendra Modi in India is able to look at and enjoy the you know the the vitality of or the inventiveness of because the work itself doesn't get your back up right it doesn't sort of force you into a particular position um in that way i think art is more similar to something like philosophy it is the more abstract way of engaging with the shared political situation mm, which leads exactly to my the second part of my question which is you know the the group of people who are likely to encounter contemporary exhibition-based art and to devote time to trying to puzzle through what what the art is communicating, you know, to think about challenging art, to think about allegorical art is a somewhat self-selecting audience. So what, you know, how how does how can art have an effect on society beyond museum goers? Yeah, it's it's a fair question. I think it's a question that applies more broadly to any form of cultural activity that is you know, somewhat more rarefied, right? Be it like political philosophy or poetry or contemporary art. And I think on the one hand, art has a duty to make itself in some way accessible. I mean, one thing that I dislike strongly is kind of contemporary artists where you kind of go into the gallery and you have no idea what's happening then you read the press release and you get like a whole bunch of fashionable references to uh you know various philosophers and thinkers and i think to myself well if i didn't get any of that when i walked in there me who has you know a phd in this stuff <laughs> you know who on earth is supposed to understand it so there is that kind of type of self-indulgence, which I think I am against, right? What the artist must do is offer something like uh, an image or a story or something that brings at least some of that broader audience in. So that's that's one thing to say, right? And the museums also, uh, I mean, work really hard to bring in diverse and different audiences. Uh, I mean, that, that's definitely been a trend, you know, in the last 40 years, let's say. Um but on the other hand, we shouldn't feel too guilty about uh, art not speaking to absolutely everyone, right? I mean, the way in which the, the, the society that we're in, you know, capitalist society that we're in is arranged, is that it very much separates uh, work and leisure and doesn't always give space for thinking and reflection, right? If there were more space uh, given for thinking and reflection, more people would have time to look at um, art maybe, but not only that, right? Like engage with politics, engage with philosophy and so forth, right? I think the important thing to recognize is that there is value in artistic uh, contemplation, just as there is value in uh, you know, uh, abstract thought, in working on yourself, in engaging in debate with perspectives that are different from your own and if there is value in that then it is the duty of society to open up art if you like to a broader to broader audiences right so i would flip the question a little bit and say like there are all of these kind of valuable activities which are available to us in society it is the duty of us as a society to make them open and available and accessible to as many people as possible mm. well and so your book does ultimately 
offer a hopeful message about art's potential to exert a positive influence on politics and on social change. Um, what, you know, having looked closely at the past 30 or so years of contemporary exhibition-based art, um, what kinds of trends inspire that hopefulness? Not, I guess I would say not just in art making, but, you know, the role that museums are playing or, you know, any other kind of trends that you've noticed that... Uh... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, in terms of art itself, I, um, you know, the, the, the kind of thing that I, I don't want to claim, because I think it would be wrong, uh, would be to sort of try and identify particular impacts of particular works, right? To say, oh, look, these artists were making, I don't know, queer art or ecological art in the 1990s. And isn't it great because we now live in a much more ecologically minded or kind of uh, inclusive society, right? I think that kind of direct causality is something we should avoid. And it's, it is something that, for example, funders of art, especially public funding here in Europe, often kind of demands, right? We will fund this if you show that it's had a direct effect. That's not how art works. That's not how thinking works. Um, but if we do look back in this kind of broader broader way that, that, that your question suggests, I think we do find uh, positive trends. I mean, even say the, just to give a few examples that I've already mentioned. So I think that the kind of turn towards evidence-based art uh, of, say, forensic architecture and other artists that I discuss in the book, I think we are going to go look, ba look back at that era and sort of say, well, here is a point where a significant section of society is asking themselves, given all the demagogy that's in place, given the noise of social media, how do we go back towards thinking more clearly, more precisely, and more truthfully? Um, and we're going to see this art as a kind of evidence of that. Or um, to look at some of the artists that I mentioned in the ecology chapter, um, Hmm. Well, I don't know, let's say Mary Mattingly, uh, an American artist who uh, creates these gigantic boulders of all of her stuff to kind of draw attention at the, at the kind of accumulation of stuff. Um, I think we are going to look at artists like that and say, well, they were maybe um, prescient of a kind of a vision that we now, that a broader section of society now identifies with. Um in terms of museums, I can't really comment on uh, the American context too much in that sense. But for example, in the UK and in Europe, I see there's a huge uh, trend in museum programming to program the kind of content that would bring in broad and diverse audiences, right? To see the kind of value of art for a broader section of society in the way that I mentioned. So, um, and often that has to do with even programming quite spectacular shows. Like I saw um, Factor International, which is a new space that's opened in uh, Manchester, and they put in like a huge Yayoi Kusama exhibition. And some people in the art world sort of, you know, turned up their nose a bit and said like, oh, who needs another Yayoi Kusama exhibition? Uh, you know, that is so kind of crowd-pleasing. But that's the kind of... I'm actually in favor of that because it brings people into the space and then you can show them more complex or more interesting stuff as well. So, um, yeah, I'd say these are the things that, that make me feel quite positive. Well, thank you again for writing the book. Um, thank you for talking to me about it today. Thank you. Thank you so much for your wonderful questions and for, yeah, having me.
on the podcast. Artists Remake the World, a Contemporary Art Manifesto by Vid Somaniti, is available now in bookstores and online. Thank you for listening, and please visit us at yalebooks.com for more episodes of the podcast, as well as information about all of our books.